from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Ty Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. It's a carbon contract conundrum. Those that did respond to this suggested that the payment rates simply weren't high enough to make this very interesting at this point. We'll tell you what you need to know before joining the quest to capture carbon. As farmer optimism grows, pent-up demand for protein is real. I think the foot traffic interest could literally be very strong between now and the 4th of July. The comeback of dining in. When the stars align, Machinery Pete gets the story behind the millennial farmer. And in John's world, the great chip shortage. Part one. Now for the news. Well, after the last USDA report caused dramatic moves in the market, many wondering what this month's supply and demand report would bring. But April's WASDE report, not much of a market mover. Traders and analysts were looking for USDA to make adjustments to the latest stock numbers, and the latest report didn't disappoint in that category. USDA calling for increased corn use for ethanol, 25 million bushels more, along with larger exports and lower ending stocks. Corn supplies now pegged at 1.35 billion bushels. That's lower than the trade estimated. For soybeans, officials expect higher exports and lower crush, and ASF may be playing into the picture. Soybean Ending stocks are projected at 120 million bushels, which is unchanged from last month, but higher than the trade expected. Wheat coming in slightly higher than expected, with higher ending stocks and unchanged exports at 852 million bushels. And planters are already rolling in many parts of the country. This week, we got our first look at how the spring planting season is going, courtesy of USDA. The Crop Progress Report showed 2% of the corn crop is planted in the 18 states surveyed. That's on par with the five-year average and with where we were this time last year. Texas, it's 55% planted. And cotton is moving slightly ahead of average with 6% of the crop in the ground. That's 1% ahead of the five-year average. But while there is some optimism about planting, many farmers are facing drought conditions that grow worse by the day. And some beef producers are having to take drastic measures. The situation is so desperate in North Dakota that county extension agents report producers are starting to destock livestock herds by culling cows. Officials at one sale barn telling me they may have to add in a second sale every week to catch up starting in May. Starting next week, we'll start seeing cow-calf pairs. Most people around here are not done calving yet. So once they're done calving, then we'll see these cow-calf pairs come to town and it will be a pile of them. I mean, most people are considering you know, a minimum of 25% of the herd. Some of them are talking 50%. We haven't seen in Western North Dakota, we've really not seen uh, any rain of any substantial amount since like September of 2019. Well, despite some of those concerns in areas like North Dakota, the optimism right now in farm country is captured in the latest ag economy barometer. The barometer from the CME Group in Purdue University rising this month to a reading of 177. That's the highest reading for the barometer since the record high reading of 184 in October. This month's 12-point rise is attributed almost entirely to ag producers' more optimistic view of the future and a rise in the index of future expectations. That index rose 16 points to a reading of 164 this month, and that's the highest reading we've seen on that index since last fall. The index of current conditions rose slightly to a reading of 202 versus 200. So the real driver in the improvement in the barometer was really from the index of future expectations. 
Experts say strong ag commodity prices and improved farm financial conditions continue to support the barometer reading as we head into spring. And the reality of ASF, it's now thought 20% of the breeding herd in northern China has been wiped out in the latest wave of African swine fever. That's what industry sources and analysts are telling Reuters. The estimates signaling a resurgence in the disease after more than a year of declining outbreaks. Now, it could be a setback to China's effort to replenish its hog herds after the disease reached the country in 2018 and was then believed to have wiped out 50% of the country's pigs in a year. Experts say an exceptionally cold winter, along with higher density of pigs following a year of restocking and new strains of ASF triggered the latest problem. Well, while pandemic restrictions are easing across the country, many restaurants appear to be banking on pent-up demand. Many casual dining restaurant chains are hoping that demand will drive stronger sales this year, especially in the second half of the year. One economist focused on protein says pent-up demand at restaurants is real. He says restaurant demand and foot traffic into restaurants is making a comeback right now. I think the foot traffic interest could literally be very strong between now and the 4th of July. And I'm jumping to the 4th of July because there's a lot of commentary. You know, I'm not a vaccine expert, but I do read a lot about availability. And I think by the time we get to the 4th of July, that's almost the furthest out I have to go to make this statement. Anybody that wants a vaccine will have had an opportunity to have it. Doesn't mean everybody will have it, but if you wanted it, you'll have an opportunity. And with that will come some freedom and comfort of going on about your business. So I think by the time we get to 4th of July, we'll have full throttle foot traffic, whatever that looks like post-COVID. While Tanzer isn't sure how long the growing hunger to eat out at restaurants will last, he says the vaccine rollout, more people getting back to work, along with the last round of stimulus money, that's causing some consumers to possibly splurge on higher-priced menu items like steaks and other proteins. But you could soon face difficulty finding ketchup at your favorite restaurant. The Wall Street Journal reporting there's a ketchup shortage right now. That's because the pandemic food takeouts triggered a run-on for individual ketchup packets. It's reported that some 300,000 tons of ketchup were sold to food service providers last year. Condiment King Kraft Heinz is saying it will launch a 25% increase in production, totaling 12 billion ketchup packets in a year. End to end, that's almost enough to go to the moon and back. Well, the latest drought monitor shows drought is growing in the upper Midwest and West, while other parts of the country are getting soaked. Mike Hoffman has his forecast next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Kubota. Together, we do more. Meteorologist Mike Hoffman joins us now with weather. Mike, the mild and drier weather seems to have come to a halt for farmers getting an early start on planting in some areas. Good morning to you, Tyne. You're absolutely right. Anytime you get a slow moving system over the middle of the country, you're going to see some cooler, less warm air. Let's call it that. Here's the root zone moisture. We're still seeing some wet areas, but not most of the country, as you can see. Arkansas, northern Louisiana, over toward the mid-Atlantic, and also parts of the western Great Lakes. It is getting drier in western Pennsylvania, northeastern Ohio. It's still dry over most of the northeast, parts of Florida, southern Alabama, Boy, North Dakota, my goodness, just can't get any moisture in that area, and that's just getting drier and drier. That looks worse than the whole West, as you can see, but the West has been dry for a long period of time. So when you actually look at the drought monitor, it's worse in the Four Corner region back into uh, parts of California and Nevada, but it's getting worse over North Dakota and the extreme northern portions of South Dakota, South uh, Texas as well. And there's kind of a new dry area there near and north of the I-80 corridor 
across the southern Great Lakes. All right, uh, let's check out over the past month. You can see how we had even more spots through the Middle Plains. Watch how we've changed over the last month. It's actually improved a little bit back into uh, parts of Kansas and Nebraska, but it has gotten worse in South Texas and worse over the far northern plains, and those are places we have to continue to watch. Here's the pattern, strange pattern, uh, as we head through <clears throat> this week. You'll notice cutoffs all over the place. We have one moving through the northern plains. That ends up over the uh, northeast by the time we get to Thursday. Another one out west at that point. And as we head into the weekend, it's just like this almost cutoff right across the northern tier of states, which will keep it chilly and at times wet in those areas. So let's check things out. Now, none of these systems are strong systems. They're just slow movers in a lot of cases. But you can see on Monday, storm system over the central Great Lakes, cold front down through the southeast. That'll have some showers, even some thunderstorms with it in the southeast. A little bit of rain, mainly snow, though, and very light in most places across the far northern Rockies and the far northern plains. Checking out Wednesday, then, that slow mover moving through the Great Lakes. Cold front back to the west with a little bit of snow. Mainly rain in the northeast, scattered showers with a stationary front along the Gulf Coast and a slow-moving system coming in out west. That's still out west by the time we get to Friday with some snow in the mountains, a little bit of rain into the plains, lingering system in the northeast, and, of course, a stationary front along the Gulf Coast. All right, here's my 30-day outlook for temperatures. Because of a shot of chillier air for a little while over the next 30 days, we're going to go near normal in this area. So it'll cool down, then it'll warm back up above normal in the northeast, above normal for most of the west. Precipitation over the next 30 days, below normal in the southeast, and unfortunately the whole dry area out west, I'm still going below normal, above normal central Mississippi Valley, Ohio Valley, and the far northern plains. Tyne? Thanks, Mike. Well, it's so dry in North Dakota that some farmers may be giving up on planting wheat. We'll talk markets with Alan Brugler and Kevin Dooling next. Well, here now with Kevin Dooling and Alan Brugler to talk about the WASDE report that came out this week. You know, some thoughts that maybe it would be a big market mover. But, Alan, when it came down to it and we got the data out from USDA on Friday, was it that big of a report? Well, we anticipated a lot of it. The the, the corn market rallied 20 cents on th uh, the day ahead of the report on Thursday. And uh, so when USDA cut their ending stocks estimate to 1.352 billion bushels, that, that most of that was already in the market. It was uh, had a lot of it had been built in through trade guesses. So what they didn't get was a, a really big jump in the corn exports uh, that had been anticipated. And, and USDA stuck to their guns on soybeans, left the ending stocks 120 million. Uh, that didn't surprise us because we think they're a pipeline supply and they really can't go down. But uh, yeah, the, the trade got lathered up a little bit ahead of the report. Didn't have much new to work with here. Yeah, Kevin, is that the same when it comes to wheat? Did we have any surprises out of this USDA report that really threw the markets for a bit of a, a, a surprise? Not that I could see. Um, but the only adjust, big adjustment they made, really, I mean, they they updated the NAS numbers a little bit to took to they up the the spring wheat carry out a little and um they you know the bigger number that jumped off the page was the world demand number they moved it to 780 
Um, I've been arguing a long time and it needed to be above 765, but they, they got to 780, but they're using just the Chinese um, substitution for corn as the reasoning. And there's, there's some truth to that, but if you look at their imports as well, it, it, it kind of throws a little shade against what they're projecting as far as the Chinese numbers. It, it's, you know, such a gray moving target. Yeah, and as you mentioned, a little bit of adjustment when it came to feed use in China for wheat, but we also saw an adjustment, Alan, in soybeans when it comes to soy crush. Does that have anything to do with concerns about African swine fever? I think it does. They they cut the the uh, Chinese crush about two million tons. Didn't didn't really affect their import estimates or any of that stuff. Uh, ASF's definitely a problem there. Uh, you, you, you're seeing a little of that in the trade reports as far as uh, you know, death loss here, death loss there. But I think the 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 real smoking gun is their import level for pork. Uh, they're continuing to buy a lot of pork from the United States. They're shipping over 13,000 tons a week from us. Uh, we have been anticipating that that's going to continue all summer now. Uh, so, yeah, it, they definitely have lost some hogs here. And uh, again, good for the pork, not so good for the for the soybean exports. Also this week, we got our first progress report out from USDA. Did show some planting progress. We'll get into that in a minute. But Kevin, it also looked at wheat conditions. Do you think USDA, I know you talk to a lot of wheat growers all across the country. Do you think USDA's report truly reflects the issues that, that wheat growers are seeing right now with some of the crop? You know, I don't have any faults with it. It, You know, you've got half of the Southern Plains crop rated good and half not. You know, the big question, question is with that is how much of that is going to get tore out and put into soybeans in the east half and where they do have good precip, uh, good moisture levels and how much are they going to stick with? I mean, sure, the good stuff they will, but from a price standpoint, it just um, doesn't make sense to raise $5 a week and you can raise 13 plus soybeans or, you know, $12 plus soybeans. Yeah. And, and Alan, real quick, when it comes to planting, we did see some planting progress, not much, but we did see some across the country. Yeah, we're, we're getting the, uh, particularly the southern parts of the corn belt going here. Uh, I was down in Missouri this week. They had uh, the typical farmer in that area had a couple of hundred acres in. They, they It's the ones that want to get the early start to, to things. But now we're looking at uh, cooler temperatures over the next 14-day uh, forecast. It's going to be dry, which will facilitate some planting. But I, I think the market's going to be very sensitive to planning progress as we get towards the end of the month. If we're if we're way ahead of normal, then the corn market might slack off a little bit. But until we've got that that uh, rapid start to the crop, I think we we're going to continue to keep a bid in here. We did get these corn over five bucks today, briefly. All right. Well, when we come back, there is dryness across the country. We'll talk about the possible impact of acreage when we come back on U.S. Farm Report. Well, a microchip shortage is impacting everything from cars to combines. Here's John Phipps. The next three weeks, I'm going to do an ag explainer about the great microchip shortage. A combination of factors has revealed crippling and widespread scarcity, manufacturing bottlenecks, and serious national security and economic repercussions. First, we need to understand where the chips in your car, cell phone, and tools come from. The first step is the design that produces the specifications for the chip. 
These designers are kind of like architects. Such companies are nicknamed fabless. They don't fabricate. Those designs are sent to factories called foundries, and they may be the cutting edge of human technology today. Finally, there's a third stage abbreviated OSAT for companies that essentially package, test, and ready the chip for end users. There are companies that do all these steps in-house, integrated device manufacturers, IDMs. Note the U.S. has a commanding dominance in IDMs, but it, those are concentrated on high-end chips. The bubble size is sales, not volume. The critical nexus in this whole process turns out to be the foundries. There's one big one, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, which not only makes 60% of the world's chips, but is at least 10 years ahead of any competitor. There is a second merely large one, Samsung, at about 30%. And here's a truly curious note. There's only one company that can manufacture advanced chip foundry machines needed by TSMC and Samsung, and it's ASML in Europe. The entire industry has specialized to a degree that one company like TSMC has near control of the market and type of chips produced. Moreover, any new competitor would not only have to overtake their technological lead, but invest hundreds of billions with a B at the risk of TSMC undercutting any possible profit. Investors really don't like that. Other key players have similar leverage over other steps. Now throw a pandemic at this fragile supply chain. Last year, some customers, like car makers, canceled orders for chips, expecting a prolonged drop in sales. The supply chain responded by shifting to chips for computers, phones, home appliances, and other devices that actually saw sales increases due to the pandemic. Then there was some outright hoarding, just like toilet paper. Finally, as you can tell, I think Bloomberg is the best source I've found for this whole problem. If you hate mainstream media, this is one I think you'll hate the least. Next week, we'll look at the demand situation to explain why your new SUV may not be delivered until fall. Well, John, we'll talk about other impacts to agriculture. That's next weekend. But up next, Machine Repeat has tractor tails. Join Andrew McRae for Farming the Countryside, a farmer-focused podcast all about production agriculture. Brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven, the nitrogen-producing microbes that stay put, whether or not. Visit pivotbio.com. Hey, welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week, we're going to go to North Central Illinois to check out a Minneapolis Moline. This is a 1956 Moline Model 335. Uh, my dad bought this from an elevator in Walland, Illinois, probably about 30 miles from here. And it had a uh, manual loader on it and uh, it wasn't very handy, so dad scrapped that one and we used it with a planter for a while on the farm. And then uh, when my brother and I were in high school, the state used to hire local people with their own equipment to mow roads. And so he wrote, mowed uh, a couple years with an old Ford, and I think one year with this, and then I mowed with two years for this one for the state. And it was kind of my dad's favorite tractor, and we had kind of an accident with it. And it went through the wrong spots, but we got it all fixed up again. It's, it's a nice little tractor, it runs real, real well. This was the smallest of the three. There was a, the 335, the 445, and the five-star. And the, as the numbers got bigger, the tractors got larger. And they kept the same configuration, but they didn't want to minimize the tractor by putting a small front end on it. Everything's original. Uh, the only thing we did buy new for this was the headlights, because uh, the old ones were broken, and we did find some replacements. But everything else is original equipment. But Moline was good for their, their new ideas, their vision line, and then they just referred to this and, and made it a little bit sleeker. This one 
was available with an optional AmpliTorque, which would make 10 gears instead of five. This one doesn't have it, it just has five gears. But uh, this is one of the first tractors they put the three-point hitch on to raise equipment with and things. You could get power shift wheels, which we don't have on this model. This is kind of a basic model. We don't work much anymore. Not these. <laughs> we have work tractors. We don't bother these. <laughs> I don't want to scratch them. <laughs> Machinery Pete makes a special appearance again this weekend as he catches up with Millennial Farmer. And still to come, as the chase to capture carbon continues, it's creating a conundrum. We'll talk about it next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report, trusted, timely, tradition. Well, Corteva AgriScience announced a carbon initiative this week. It will be targeted toward row crop farmers in Illinois, Indiana, and Iowa. Corteva joins companies like Bayer who are already paying farmers to help offset their carbon footprint. But more as more contracts come to life, there may be some things to think about before entering into any type of long-term commitment. It's a carbon contract conundrum in this week's Farm Journal report. As the chase to capture carbon continues, it's a possible new source of income. I mean, it is certainly uh, a new revenue source for farmers, so that's a pro no matter how you look at it. And as agriculture could be part of the solution, it's being met with some skepticism. It, it is a wonderful opportunity, but it's like every opportunity, you have to understand what you're getting yourself into. Ag lawyer Todd Jansen says farmers need to think about possible sacrifices of the long-term commitment. They're really long. They want a long-term duration, usually uh, 5, 10, 15 years. Otherwise, they're not that valuable. Understanding the value of entering into such long-term contracts is something more farmers are learning about. The latest ag economy barometer from Purdue University found between 30 to 40 percent of those surveyed say they are aware of opportunities to get paid for sequestering carbon, but only a small group have actually engaged in those discussions. On the March survey, the most recent survey, I think it was just 7% of the people in our, our larger uh, survey sample actually have engaged in discussions. So a pretty small group of people have actually taken that step to have some discussions. Jim Mintert authors the monthly barometer. He says a smaller group have actually taken the final step to seal the deal. Just 1% of the people in our survey said that they'd signed a contract. And I have to throw in a caveat there because when you get down to that smaller percentage, you're talking about a handful of people out of our survey. So that's a pretty small percentage. The reason, Mentor says it may be the financial piece of it. Those that did respond to this suggested that the payment rates simply weren't high enough to make this very interesting at this point. The Ag Economy Barometer found the average carbon contract payment today is less than $20 an acre, with many contracts coming in less than $10. The payment piece of the puzzle is something to which a nonprofit group is working to bring more transparency. Today, I think there's evidence that 25% and even less is actually going to the farmer and rancher. There's not a lot of transparency in these markets currently. Debbie Reed is the executive director of the Eco Service Market Consortium, a public-private partnership she says is collaborating with the entire ag supply chain. We do not want every organization to have to make their own investments in infrastructure, in tools, technologies to actually achieve those outcomes. And we certainly don't want farmers and ranchers to have to figure that out themselves on their own. 
Reed believes openness and transparency is part of the solution in today's carbon contract conundrum, but she also thinks the right tools and technology are missing. Someone does have to pay for them, right? But if we can bring new tools and technologies to farmers and ranchers, to the buyers, and reduce quantification costs, reduce verification costs, again, I think that's where we can really ensure that more money is going to the farmer and rancher. Today, many private groups are creating their own carbon contracts and systems. And she says moving forward, it will be a marriage of both private and public. Private voluntary markets are actually leading in this effort and are far ahead of, I think, of what we see in the public sector. A private sector that's only willing to pay for farmers to adopt a new conservation practice on their farm, like no-till or planting cover crops. You're not going to pay tomorrow for corn you sold last year or last week, right? You're going to pay for new corn. The markets are the same way, right? The demand is for new improvements in soil carbon, in reduced greenhouse gases, in water quality. That's a market function. She says the public piece may be able to reward farmers who have been conservation minded for years. Maybe the federal government can pay for things that have happened or that don't qualify in existing markets. Protecting existing soil carbon stocks is an, a perfect example. As groups like the consortium work to bring more transparency to the marketplace, today the opportunity to sequester carbon is more of a Wild West scenario with no regulation or national structure in place. I always warn producers that yes, this is an opportunity. All bets are off because the government is not involved yet. When the government gets involved, it could either be really, really good or it could go the other way. As farmers measure their impact, Jansen says it ultimately comes down to how consumers perceive these practices. I think that we're going to have to see that in the long term because uh, this all depends on consumer trust ultimately. All to participate in the environmental cryptocurrency world. We have the farmers who can unlock uh, these environmental uh, bitcoins, if you will, um, by undertaking certain protocol and uh, creating this uh, sort of fictional currency that can then be bought and sold on the open market. A world where details on contracts could make or break a farmer's quest to participate. You're going to have to really watch this very closely because I, I, there's already things that are happening out there in the current, what I call, private market that's not very good. An effort to create change and one that could come with growing pains as farmers and ranchers wait to see if this is truly the future of agriculture. There's going to be an evolution here, uh, both in terms of payment rates and the agreements and, and how that kind of shakes out. So it's going to be interesting to see how this evolves over time and whether or not it really turns out to be um, the panacea that some people think it might be. All right, from carbon contracts to commodity contracts, we'll get a check of markets again with Alan Brugler and Kevin Dooley next. It starts with a plan. That's why America's Conservation Ag Movement is inviting you to get your farm business ready for 2021 with a free resource stewardship planning guide. Get your free guide today at agweb.com ACAM. Alan Brugler and Kevin Dooling joining me again. Kevin, as we see some planting progress, we're hearing from farmers in North Dakota that say, listen, it is even too dry to plant. We're talking about parking the planters right now, possibly not planting wheat. Is this something that is really plaguing the entire Northern Plains and into the Pacific Northwest? Well, the Northern Plains is, I mean, they're, they haven't been in this spot for quite a while. And, you know, if you look at the wheat up there, they weren't, 
the wheat was the wheat price was not buying acreage as it was. I mean, the canola and soybeans were going to outcompete wheat, and then you throw the dryness on top of it, and it's like, well, what do you do now? And I think you're going to see a lot of areas just flat halt and wait and see what they can do. I mean, wheat's more expensive to raise than than those other two, so. I, I, I do think you're going to see a sizable shift in acreage from, I mean, there was already a, you know, five to 6% expected drop in spring wheat acreage. But if you add in the, the drought, I mean, that could be quite a bit. I mean, you, and just, it's not a fun spot to be. It also moves up into Canada. Um, and then as far as the Northwest goes, I mean, the, the spring planting is going to go on as it normally does, but it's such a small player um we just we flat have to have some rain here in the next three four weeks or else the you know then we're going to have some major problems so yeah definitely and alan when you look at, at usda's perspective plantains re report that we saw come out a week ago really an explosive report but do you think that that acreage story is over i don't think it's over I, if you look at their uh performance for the last 20 years on that you can see that the average swing from March until June is about 1.2 million acres on corn. It's about 1.6 million on beans. If you add up all the principal crop acres, you had a little over 316 million. Recent years, we've been running 319, 320. Back in 2012, which was a nice dry spring, we had 326 million. So I, th I think there's room for some more acreage here. The, the uh, corn and bean acreage war is still underway. Deese corn and no beans are still fighting to go into new contract highs, trying to attract that extra acreage. Kevin, you know, what do you do if it's too dry to plant? What are some marketing decisions that you could start making now if it's just too dry, maybe to, to get some of that spring wheat in? Boy, it's a good question, you know. I like again, I think canola is going to surprise people. There's going to be a lot of acreage for canola that people didn't think. Um, that's got a good price. It's following the soybean oil market. And that would be my first instinct. I mean, I forget offhand what the insurance rules are with a prevent plant situation. I don't, you know, know if you can get into that in a dry spring. Yeah, it's just a different spot to be in than we've been in a long time in that region. So the weather pattern is definitely shifting a little bit this year from what I can tell. Yep. And real quick, Alan, let's move over to livestock real quick. We have seen some momentum in pork prices backed off a little bit, but what's driving pork prices at this point? Well, we've got a nice combination. Of, if you're a hog producer, the nice combination of tight cold storage stocks, meaning we don't have much buffer, tightest since 2010 for some of these recent months. You've got a strong export program. And then of course the March hogs and pigs report showed you that you, you're still downsizing the herd. You're really not getting the uh, expansion that the prices are trying to get you to do. USDA cut their uh, pork production estimate for 2021 by 405 million pounds uh, in the Friday report here. So that's that's a reflection of that uh, lack of expansion. And, and it's, a, it's a reason to keep, keep the, the fire lit under these hogs. We are pretty overbought technically, but I can also argue that uh, looking back to the 2013-2014 period, we could we could certainly get into the 110 to 113 range. And uh, of course, back in PED days, we got up into the $130 range. So we've been here before. Uh, I, the question is, will, will the Chinese buyers and the other world buyers keep paying this kind of price level? Yep, all right, definitely. Well, thank you both so much. We need to take a quick break and then we'll have much more right here on US Farm Report. 
Well, you just never know who you'll run into at equipment auctions. Sometimes the stars just align. Hey folks, look who I found out here on the auction trail in central Minnesota. My friend Zach and Becky Johnson, millennial farmer. Guys, great to see you. Good to see you, Greg. You too. And holy cow, we got to talk about your growth here over the years. Been an amazing, what now, five years is it since you guys got started? Real close, yeah. We started spring of 2016. Okay, and you probably get tired of this question being asked, but how did this all start, Millennial Farmer? How'd you guys get rolling with it? So I had the idea to start the channel basically because I wanted to reach people about farming. You know, I was seeing a lot of stuff online and hearing a lot of stuff in person about some of the management practices that we use. And uh, people were upset about them most of the time because they just didn't have the whole truth about what was actually going on and why we use those practices. So I wanted to create the channel just to show people, yeah, we use GMO seed and this is why, and we install drain tile and this is why, and these are the benefits we get from it. And, you know, we use herbicides and pesticides and here's the reasons why. And as we use those things, just kind of document us going along and actually doing it. And uh, I had the idea for a while but I didn't really have the guts to pull the trigger until she, I think, got sick of hearing me talk about it without doing it and said, well, just start it then, you know, and, and see what happens. And if you don't like it, you can delete it. And I would say it's safe to say at this point, it's snowballed into something neither one of us you could have ever delete thought. delete it. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about that snowball. My gosh, your YouTube subscribers, is it over 740,000 now? Yes. Wow. And like, what kind of growth rate are you seeing? Because every time I look, it's like another 100,000 higher. Well depending on what time of year it is. Yeah, it definitely grows fastest during harvest. Everybody loves big machinery, combine and corn, right? So we get a lot of views during harvest. That's when it grows the fastest. But over the last year now, um, we have grown for sure 250,000, yeah. I would say, subscriber-wise. What, what is that like, the feedback you get? Because I look at the comments on your videos and they just go on forever and people are so intrigued by what you're doing in the conversation. That must be really powerful stuff. It is, yeah. It, there's a lot of rewarding comments there. And, you know, when I started it, I was ready to, to see negative comments. I kind of expected that. But I thought the negative comments were, would come from, you know, the people outside of farming that didn't understand what we're doing there. Those people are all super excited to see how a farm works from the inside out. And it actually, any negative comments I get, which is not many, they almost all come from other farmers. And how do you come up with the ideas? I mean, you're, you're doing your thing, you're farming. Do, are these just organic? They just pop up? That's how I come up with the ideas. There, there isn't any. It's yeah. just life on the farm. We, we have never scripted anything. I mean, yeah, when I leave the house in the morning, I've got a camera about the size of my cell phone that I put in my coat pocket, and whatever happens that day happens. And I don't plan ahead for anything. So, guys, you had the idea to do this auction video, which I thought was super fun. But I show up today and there is just a busload of people here the day before the auction. Our camera guy thought the sale was today. There were so many crowd, so many people here. Yeah, we talked at Commodity Classic down in, I think it was San Antonio last year. And actually it was Becky that came up with the idea after watching you give that talk about the different bidding styles and what happens live at the auction. And, you know, we kind of came up with the idea, or she did, and we kind of pieced together some cliff notes. and. Had a lot of fun today making that video, and honestly, that's the most scripted thing that we've ever actually done, so I'm excited to see how it turns out. Thank you to Machinery Pete, the Millennial Farmer brand, and the people behind it have such a story. Thanks so much. Well, up next, John Phipps. Vaccination witch doctors. 
America's Conservation Ag Movement, a national partnership to help farmers scale conservation for their businesses, the environment, and their communities. To learn more, visit agweb.com ACAM. told you earlier in the show, the vaccine rollout is helping restaurant demand, but not everyone is on board. Here's John Phipps. From Fred Diver in Burlingame, Kansas. People are refusing the COVID-19 vaccine because it was fast-tracked and therefore might have some unknown side or long-term effects. During World War II, the USA fast-tracked the production of penicillin for Allied troops, so by D-Day there were over 600,000 doses available. It's estimated 12 to 15 percent of Allied casualties were saved by its availability. When we were in Africa a few years ago, our tour guide was describing the HIV epidemic. In some countries, 70 percent of the population was born with or living with HIV. Local beliefs in witch doctors hampered widespread acceptance of life-saving medications. Are we allowing Facebook, Twitter, etc., to be an electronic witch doctor for the COVID-19 vaccine? Fred, I think you've nailed it because that's a, those are great historical analogy. Because the COVID vaccine was miraculously, I think, produced with amazing effort by pharmaceutical companies, the false assumption that safety and testing protocols were skipped or abbreviated has unfortunately gained traction. If anything, this process has pointed out some ways other less urgent vaccines could be accelerated safely in the future. The speed of development also means we do not have those years of data yet from those who have received the vaccine. Like all medical interventions, there is a risk of some reaction or unexpected outcomes, but there is no indication to date in trials or use of significantly higher risks than expected. But like the completely disproven link between the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine and autism, which was triggered by one fraudulent medical study, refuting misinformation with science has proven nearly impossible with public trust shredded by conspiracy mongers and political scare tactics. COVID vaccination is ironically hampered by a virus that is just deadly enough to overload medical systems like hospitals but not spread and kill like smallpox or the plague. Like car or gun deaths, we have become numb to the steady, seemingly minor loss of life and money until it's you or yours. The danger is the COVID variants, like the UK version, will crowd our comfort level a little more, attacking more young people and presenting more severe symptoms and higher infection rates. People rejecting vaccination may appear to be logically accepting a very low risk, but they also identify themselves as less concerned about others. Well, like John, some Illinois farmers have been in the fields this week, but many say it's dry. We'll tell you about planting progress next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Bayer Plus Rewards, helping make every part of your season more rewarding. Visit MyBayerPlus.com to learn more. Well, we told you earlier in the newscast about many farmers excited to start planting season early this year, and with some planting soybeans the earliest they ever have. I would say these conditions, it hasn't been like this since 12, in my opinion. 
you know, even low ground that is traditionally pretty wet is drying out. But farther north in North Dakota, this video telling the story. This farmer no-tilling wheat here, and you can see just the cloud of dust behind him. Right now, 92% of North Dakota's topsoil and 68% of South Dakota's topsoil are rated short to very short of moisture. And now with growing concerns about the lack of moisture, farmers are debating parking the planter for now. Yesterday, we just started seeing seeding some durum on pinto ground from last year, and it's it's 10 times worse. I, I would have never thought it would have been as, as dry as it is, you know, as farmers were eternal optimists and stuff like that. But uh, when you have air seeders set for two and a half to three inches deep to try to get it down to moisture with no-till disc drills and, and uh, you got down pressure set up as, as high as you can get it and you can only maybe get it an inch, inch and a half from the ground because it's, it's just concrete out there. And one pass with the air seeder and it's just powder behind it. Well, North Dakota farmers say they didn't really see any snow this winter, and the last time they experienced a measurable rainfall was last August. That's all the time we have this weekend. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to join us next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.